Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell. I'm your host, and this is episode 57. Today I have an amazing episode for you. I'm going to be sharing with you a conversation that I had a couple of weeks ago with Varun Soni. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in just a minute. I'm also introducing a new segment with Brian Peck called Room to Thrive. Room to Thrive is the name of Brian's new coaching practice, which is focused on helping people navigate spiritual and faith transition, deconversion, and similar experiences of leaving communities of belief and belonging and launching out into the unknown. As many of you have experienced, this is an often lonely and fraught time in life when the accompaniment of a therapist or a coach is so valuable. So to get the Room to Thrive segment started, I asked Brian if he would come on the show again briefly and talk with me about where his work stands and how you can get involved. Welcome back to Life After God, Brian. Thanks so much, Ryan. You know, I've really, really enjoyed having you back on the air again. Um, yeah, so welcome back. Thank you. As well. yeah, yeah, thanks. It's so good to be back. And, you know, it's, I, I, I forgot how much I enjoyed it, and uh, I'm really having a blast with it right now. So awesome. it's good to be back. And you also are, are building some new, uh, some new tools. Uh, very, in the very beginning of Life After God, you and I talked about what it would be, and one of the key components of Life After God was always supposed to be um, a coaching component, an individual, um, either online or on the phone, or if it happened to work out in person, um, one-to-one coaching model where people could have someone to talk to uh, about their deconversion, about the questions that they're dealing with in their faith uh, journey. And uh, that really grew out of my uh, year without God. And people would just contact me and say, do you have a minute? You know, could I, could I talk to you? Because I'm going through something similar. And it just hit me that People need someone to talk to, even if it's not formal therapy. Uh, it would be great to just have a friend to kind of walk along that path with. And for whatever reason, and the reasons are a multitude, I never really was able to get that off the ground. But you, uh, being a therapist yourself, have been working on this very problem. And I'm excited for you to kind of tell us where that's at. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited to, uh, to share kind of the um, progress over time. When I first uh, reached out to you, I was working uh, full-time at a clinic and um, and I didn't have the bandwidth to develop the coaching practice that I um, really wanted to. 
And, and so um, since then, I've actually moved into my own private practice and I'm seeing clients um, here in person at my uh, practice in Boise, Idaho. But I'm also developing uh, deconversion coaching as well. And um, yeah, my idea um, around the coaching is to provide some, uh, n- not just a soft place to land, not just a place to share your story, um, but some evidence-based principles that we can apply to this process so individuals can move through the deconversion uh, transition more smoothly, hopefully with less suffering, and uh, get on with living the life that they want after God. So where is that at? And, and can people start plugging into that? Yeah, so it's been an interesting uh, personal journey as part of um, starting my own private practice. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I'm no longer just a therapist. I'm also a business owner and marketer and mm. uh, all the different hats you wear as part of that. And so um, I've been stretched in several different directions over the last year and a half. And uh, recently, I've really made a commitment to get the coaching um, practice up and going. And so I have two or three coaching packages that I'm developing at the moment, and they will be on offer um, here within the next week or so. Uh, hopefully by the time this podcast, uh, this segment's on a the podcast, they'll be um, out and available for people to um, look at and, and see whether they would be a good fit for them or not. So um, yeah, so it's been, there's been a lot of work behind the scenes getting uh, it to this point. I'm interested in you know, developing assessment tools and questionnaires to um, help individuals gain um, you know, kind of more personal insight into insight into their experience, as well as um, you know, be useful information uh, for for a coaching type relationship. Yes, yeah, some self assessment tools that they can use on their own to kind of uh, have a better handle on kind of where they're at, kind of like locate themselves on the map, as it were. Like you are here. Um, yeah, is that kind of the the idea? And then some in person or not in person, but some um, like over the phone type of um, coaching with you? Yeah, so um, absolutely. I think, um, you know, having some clarity around this process, I think oftentimes when we start going through the questioning, the doubting, the, okay, I no longer believe what I used to believe. Now what do I do with my life? And, um, you know, there's there tends to be a bit of um, fog around that. And it's not always clear where you are in that process and uh, what the common kind of processes are um, as you go through that. And so, yeah, my my goal with creating a questionnaire or an, or an assessment is um, is really to gain that kind of personal insight, just kind of noticing the different stages, the different um, things at play. Um, as part of this experience, you know, a person can start to connect more with where they're at and that can be certainly, certainly be useful in, in moving forward. That's great. So where can people learn more about this? At your website, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Room to Thrive is my website and they can go there. Um, like I said, the coaching packages should be up as you're listening to this now. Um, if not, they will be very soon. So um, yeah, you definitely can check that out there. Yeah, so definitely go to roomtothrive.com and um, check out what Brian's working on. Uh, drop him uh, a line and schedule a time to meet with him. I know he's offering some um, initial consultation. And then you're also working on some tools for therapists because one of the big challenges is that so much of therapy emerges for, for therapists out of a, a faith-based model 
Um, and even if it doesn't, there the, the notion of sort of um, post-religious stress or whatever you want to call it is a relatively new idea. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there just isn't a lot of a lot of awareness. I think when you're in a um, a counseling or a therapy program, oftentimes um, spirituality is stressed as you know a strength, and um, therapists look for ways to incorporate you know spirituality into um, their their work with the client. And and in some cases, um, that that's a really great thing. Um, but for those of us who have moved through a deconversion process, oftentimes um, it's not particularly helpful. Um, and so, yeah, so I think I'm wanting to create awareness. And actually, I just created a, um, a PDF for therapists um, with the help of the Life After God community. And I um, really appreciate everyone who gave feedback um, to the question of um, what I want my therapist to know about my deconversion process. Oh, wow. And so, um, yeah, so we got some really great responses there. And in my goal in creating this resource for therapists, primarily just to increase awareness, um, but then also to, um, you know, hopefully have them, you know, pique their interest and uh, then I can provide them with additional resources and, and hopefully resources for their, their clients as well. You know, I, I guess my, my passion is um, I'm, I'm not that personally, I'm not that interested in um, the kind of theological or philosophical questions. I mean, I, I am at a personal level, but not, not in my work. Um, and I think there's a lot of resources out there um, already. If you are asking questions and you want to get to the bottom of, of some of those questions, there's a, there's, there's a lot of resources available for you. Once you kind of make that um, intellectual journey, you know, often there's um, – a bit of, you know, emotional journey to take. There's, um, how does this affect my life in, in other areas? And, and so I'm interested in, in helping individuals um, who are either actively moving through that process or have moved through that kind of intellectual process, kind of really connect with, um, you know, their own personal values, what matters to them, um, creating a life that's, that's important and meaningful to them. And, you know, I, I think, the deconversion process can be kind of painful and difficult. And on the other side of that, it's also, there's a lot of opportunity. And so I want to um, you know, help individuals capture that opportunity now where there isn't, you know, maybe this top down authority telling you how to live your life. And it kind of feels, I don't know, a bit scary to step into that space of not knowing, but there, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity to kind of, um, you know, tune into your own values and what's important to you and then move forward. And so, um, yeah, my, my passion is to help individuals, you know, go through that process and come out on the other side, uh, really connected to their own, their own values. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I've just been reflecting recently again about how scary freedom is. Um, and I remember in my own deconversion, especially, uh, the year without God that I wrote about in 2014, which unbelievably has been four years ago. Um, wow. I know. I, I remember feeling almost equal parts freedom and liberation and fear and and uncertainty. It's so liberating, it's scary. It's Or it's yeah. so freeing that you're like, I don't know if I'm safe out here. Um, how will I know what to do? And yeah. and I think about the rise of authoritarianism even in our country and how uh, how unprepared we so often are, whether it's in our personal lives or in our political 
community, you know, public life as a community unprepared for the consequences of freedom, like what it really requires of us, that we mm-hmm. have to invest in ourselves and in one another in, in ways that require some time and energy and thought and, and reflection, uh, rather than just following some rule book or what someone told us was the right thing to do. It's, uh, there are trade-offs to be had there. And I really think yeah. that that type of guided process with a therapist or a coach, uh, however it may work for you, um, is so vitally important. Yeah. You know, as you were um, describing that, the equal parts kind of freedom and excitement and then also kind of fear around that, you know, our, our brains evolved to conserve energy and and we would sooner uh, think we're right about something than to kind of sit in this space of not knowing. Uh, and so, you know, it's so interesting so how true. like, yeah. And so, um, you know, if, if that's the case um, it, and yet we, we see value in this kind of in-between space and you know, in some ways, it's a luxury to have the the ability to go through that process. Um, but it's very easy to kind of swing to the other side and, and, and find something else to be certain about because, mm. you know, our brain really, really joneses for that certainty. And so um, if we can, you know, see the potential and the opportunity in holding open the questions and, and then tuning into what's important to us, as opposed to just feeling certain about the next thing, whatever the next thing is. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's really, um, it's a, it's a brilliant opportunity. Um, and, and you can swing to the other side and find, you know, so much certainty, certainty in, in other areas that um, may or may not be useful for you. And, um, it's like being, yeah, being so, on the rebound from God. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. You know, like latch onto the next right. warm body that comes along and like save me. Yeah. Help me not be yeah. lonely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean it's interesting, you know, like that kind of rebound relationship with yeah. you know, I don't know, some form of spirituality. And and if that works for you, that's great. Um And maybe we all have like, to do a little bit of that. You know what I mean? I, I think really... so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Brian, thank yeah. you so much for what you're doing. Um, and I look forward to having you as sort of a regular component of the podcast, however frequently that works out. And I really hope those of you listening will uh, go to roomtothrive.com and uh, connect with Brian, uh, even if it's in an exploratory fashion, sign up for his newsletter that he sends out. And um, there's some free resources that can kind of whet your appetite for what's there. But, you know, I feel like even if you have a good command of your own psyche and you're feeling pretty good another set of a set of eyes and ears to kind of help you process what you're going through can be can be so important so do check it out and thanks Brian for for being here today oh you bet Ryan thank you so much it's really really a privilege and I just love your work and I'm glad to be part of it in a small way that I am and I'm looking forward to uh, doing great things together so much good stuff in the works from my friend Brian Peck and I hope you will in fact go to his website roomtothrive.com and check it out And now I'm really excited to uh, bring you this conversation that I had with the Dean of Religious Life at USC, Varun Soni. Uh, He is an extraordinary man, very accomplished, confident, but also humble. And so because of that, you won't really get to know uh, his entire bio by listening to this interview. So I want to, by way of introduction, tell you a little bit about my friend Varun. You'll hear about the work that he's doing Uh, at USC uh, in our conversation, Um, but here is a little bit about Varun. He received his BA degree in religion from Tufts University, where he also earned an Asian studies minor and completed the program in peace and justice studies. Uh, 
He subsequently received his MTS degree from Harvard Divinity School and his MA degree through the Department of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He then went on to receive his JD degree from University of California, Los Angeles School of Law, where he also completed the Critical Race Studies program and served as an editor for the Journal of Islamic and Near Eastern Law. He earned his PhD through the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Cape Town, where his doctoral research focused on religion and popular culture. As an undergraduate student, Dean Sony spent a semester living in a Buddhist monastery in India through Antioch University's Buddhist Studies program. As a graduate student, he spent months doing field research in South Asia through UCSB's Center for Sikh and Punjab Studies. He's now a university fellow at USC's Annenberg Center on Public Diplomacy and an adjunct professor at the USC School of Religion. He's the author of Natural Mystics, The Prophetic Lives of Bob Marley and Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan. And his writings have appeared in the Washington Post, Huffington Post, Cross Currents, Jewish Journal, and the Harvard Divinity Bulletin. So you can see what a um, diverse and talented man uh, Varun is and uh, doing amazing work at USC. I first got to know Varun when I was doing interfaith work as a pastor at the Hollywood Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, He, at that time, was already here at USC. I was doing some work at the time with my interfaith colleagues around the ways our different religious traditions handled the inclusion of LGBTQ individuals in the church or in religious life. I then served briefly on a task force for the LGBT Center of Los Angeles, and Varun was also on that task force with me. And now I have the privilege of working with him as the humanist chaplain at USC. Just before the holidays, Varun and the associate dean for religious life, Vanessa Gomez-Brake, who you'll be hearing more about on this podcast, reached out to me and asked if I would uh, step into this role as the humanist chaplain at USC. Uh, The very first humanist chaplain at USC was my good friend Bart Campolo, who's also been on the show. Uh, He recently moved back to Cincinnati, Ohio, and has since uh, taken up uh, a chaplaincy uh, at University of Cincinnati. I can't fill his shoes, but I'm excited to step into that role and uh, do my best as a part-time volunteer uh, to work with these students who are very inspiring and very um, insightful about what it means to live life after God in the 21st century in a big city like Los Angeles. Uh, So I'm sure that I'll be telling you more about my work at USC and hopefully feature some students from USC on the show. As always, I appreciate your support for my work. I would like to especially thank Drew, Kipling, Rachel, and Jessica, who became patrons in the last few weeks. Thank you so much for your support. If this podcast is meaningful to you and adds value to your life, I would love your uh, financial support to make it possible. You can make a recurring monthly donation to Life After God at my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. You can also follow us on all of our social media channels. You can search for us on Facebook, Life After God. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Life After God. That's O-U-R, Life After God. As always, check out our website for past episodes of the podcast and all the various ways that you can be in touch with us. If you have a thought to share or a recommendation about the podcast, please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Rune, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to uh, have you on the podcast. Um, after all the 
times we've had a chance to talk. Uh, it's right. good, good to have you on the show. Well, I'm especially grateful to have this opportunity to sit down with you as um, the Dean of Religious Life and as the new humanist chaplain of uh, the University of Southern California. So Thank you. Congratulations to you. Yeah, thanks. It's exciting. I mean, this is sort of my first day in a way. Um, new semester. so stoked to have you here. I can't <laughs> even tell you. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that and kind of what the dreams are, because I think it's um, the the opportunities are really, um, really, I don't want to say endless, maybe, but there are so many possibilities of the way that humanist life could benefit the in- entire campus. Of course, yeah. So for those that maybe don't know you, and I know in Southern California and in interfaith circles, you're well known. Um but seeing as how I have this international audience on yes. the podcast. <laughs> yes, the 10 interfaith people in L.A. know me well. <laughs> um, so uh, tell us a little bit about your um, sort of your background, your um, faith background, as well as your, you know, your professional background. Okay. So my name is Varun Soni. I'm the dean of religious life here at the University of Southern California. Um, I think what makes my appointment here unique is that um, I'm the first Hindu in American history to be the chief religious or spiritual leader of a, uni- of a university. Uh, when I was appointed in 2008, I was the only non-Christian to be in this role in the country. Wow. Um, and I have a unique background, I think, for a university chaplain. Um, I'm not ordained. Um, I am an attorney, uh, professor, um, grew up in the United States for the most part. Um, so I I, have a, I bring a different set of experiences, I think, to the role than my colleagues do. Uh, here at USC, I have the extraordinary privilege of overseeing almost 100 different student religious groups. That's more religious groups than any American at any other American university. Hmm. I oversee about 60 chaplains, uh, which um, is the largest and most diverse group of chaplains working on any college campus. And I get to do this work right here in the heart of Los Angeles, which is the most religiously diverse city ever in the history of the world. Um, so the opportunities for religious engagement, spiritual reflection, interfaith work, community service are really endless. And the fact that L.A. is so diverse in terms of ethnicity and race and nationality uh, and that USC has uh, 11,000 international students gives the work that I do um, a geo-religious uh, perspective as well. It's not just that there's diversity with uh, across traditions. There's also tremendous diversity within traditions. We have 40 Christian groups. We have five Jewish groups. We have five Hindu groups. Uh, Muslim students from all over the Muslim world can meet at USC in a way that they couldn't meet probably at their home mosques even. So um, the opportunities for intra-faith engagement are just as rich as those for interfaith engagement. Yeah, and those of us have been doing this work for a little while. I mean, that intra-faith engagement can in some ways be even more challenging. Of course. Of course. That's why there's 30,000 denominations of Christianity. We assume, (laughs) I think, in the public sphere that conflict emerges between the traditions of the world. But in my experience, there's more conflict within each religion than Mm. there is between the religions. Well, I want to come back in a little while and talk a little bit about sort of the history of the Office of Religious Life at USC, um, because I know a lot of our um, some of the most significant universities in America had religious roots, mm-hmm. um, and so they've evolved into being more secular. Um, and I just find it so interesting that a school like USC, which is a private university, um, has this rich religious life. But let's put a pin in that for just okay. a minute, because I want to go back and I want to just kind of find out a little bit about your your growing up experience in religion, because I know that... Whenever, you know, and I don't even know the answers to these questions. So I'm, I'm just as excited to hear this story as, as anybody else. What was it like for you? Where did you grow up and how did you grow up with respect to religion? Yeah. 
Well, um, for the most part, I grew up uh, in Southern California. I was very young when we moved to Southern California, about an hour south of where we're sitting right now. And um, at the time, uh, there weren't a lot of Indians in the public sphere. There weren't really even a lot of Indians in the United States. My parents were able to immigrate to the United States after the 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act. They were able to immigrate because they were physicians. And between the mid-20s and the mid-60s, Asiatic immigration was was essentially excluded until the INA. So what that meant is that the Indians who came to the United States between the mid-60s and the mid-70s were mostly physicians and engineers because that was the category of occupation that was allowed to immigrate to the U.S. So I grew up with two physician parents, and basically all my friends grew up with parents who were also physicians and engineers. We we only thought that (laughs) that was what the you could do with your life, either become a physician or engineer, because we didn't have any other model. Um, you were expected to become a physician or an engineer. Yeah, totally. I have 12 physicians in my family. <laughs> my PhD in religion means nothing to, to any them? of them. No, no one thinks I'm a real doctor. I had to marry a physician to redeem myself you're from such my parents' a, You're eyes. such a disappointment. Even my <laughs> wife calls me Mr. Sony. I'm like, it took me longer to get a PhD than it took you to get an MD, but there's just no respect for that. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know... What that essentially meant is that our parents were more secular, more scientific, more interested in assimilation than acculturation. They weren't trying to do cultural preservation. They wanted us to be American. Hmm. So I didn't really understand what it meant to be Hindu. I didn't have any role models in the public sphere. Um, I knew that we did cultural Hindu celebrations in my home, but it's not like we were being raised in a temple environment. I was a lot like my Jewish friends, culturally Hindu, but theologically or scripturally not sure what that meant. Mm. Uh, What really, I think, impacted me at a young age was when my grandparents moved in with me. My grandfather was, I think, the predominant role model in my life. Uh, My parents were physicians. They were working all the time. So I was essentially raised by my grandparents. And my grandfather was a Buddhist. He was a musician. He was a poet. He was a teacher. His mother was very close to Kasturba Gandhi, who was Mahatma Gandhi's wife. So he grew up around Mahatma Gandhi. Wow. So as a young kid, he would regale me with stories about sitting mm. in the Mahatma's lap and hanging out with Nehru and the other leaders of the Indian nationalist movement. Incredible. And around when I was probably like 10, we went and saw this movie Gandhi, which had come out and it was a big it, I remember. Yeah. And it was the first time that I saw my community projected in a positive way on a big screen. Um, And I took a lot of pride in the fact that my family had a connection to this great man who we were watching on the screen. And so I think at a young age, I was having these conversations with my grandfather about social justice and spirituality and reconciliation. And that shaped me in a way that I couldn't really appreciate at the time. But now that I look back upon my life, I understand uh, as seminal. When I I got to college, I wanted to be a a lawyer, um, uh, but I took a class in Asian religions, and for the first time, I began to understand how profound my own tradition was, how profound Hindu and Buddhist traditions were, how deep they go, and how interesting they were spiritually and personally, that there was wisdom in these traditions that I could bring uh, into my life. I first took the class just to try and figure out what it meant to be Indian, what it meant to be Hindu as a heritage student. Mm. But these classes touched me in a deeper way. The real important moment uh, in terms of transforming my professional aspirations happened my junior year. I decided to do a study abroad program in India. I was living in a Buddhist monastery. I had sort of taken the vows of a Theravada monk. Uh, and I had a chance encounter with the Dalai Lama under the tree of the Buddha's enlightenment. 20 years old, you know, blew my mind. And uh, I never experienced anything like that. And in His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, I saw um, 
I saw Gandhi in some ways. I saw someone who was interested in social justice and spirituality and understood those two things to be related and understood how we could transform ourselves by, and, and that's how we could transform the world. Uh, I saw someone who radiated compassion and joy despite the fact that he has probably the most difficult life story of anyone I will ever meet. Um, and so uh, because of that, um, I began to see a spiritual path not just as something that was personally interesting but s- could be interesting from the perspective of uh, my scholarly or professional life. And at that point, I decided, hey, I want to become a college professor. I want to teach religion. I want to open minds up in the same way that my mind was opened up. And so that was a seminal moment. Um, Since then, I've spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama. I got to host him here in 2011, introduce him to my students, which was cool because I met him as a college student, and then I got to introduce him to my students. Talk about full circle. Wow. But I began to realize that I got to spend time with the Dalai Lama in the same way that my grandfather got to spend time with uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Wow. And, and in the same way that my wife's family, um, who my wife's from South Africa, her family were part of the ANC, the anti-apartheid mm. struggle. Mm. There's a real rich history of Indians in the anti-apartheid movement that hasn't been told yet. But her family was really front and center. They worked very closely with Mandela. So my wife grew up hearing stories about her family working with Mandela. Um, you know, my, I did the same with Gandhi, my own experiences with the Dalai Lama. Now that we have a daughter, that's what I want her legacy to be. Right. You know, how do we think about social justice, empathy, compassion, um, inclusion from a spiritual perspective? Because for me, those are what those men did, Mandela, Gandhi, um, the Dalai Lama. And so um, I guess that... Um, me becoming dean of religious life at USC um, is really, I thought, very unusual because my background is so different than other people's. But when I got the job, I realized that this is the work I've always wanted to do. I just never thought as a non-ordained Hindu attorney I could ever be in this role. (laughs) (laughs) USC totally thought outside the box. So um, I guess my own religious perspective is that I am Hindu by birth and by identity, but I'm very much shaped by Buddhism, my experience with Buddhism. I consider the Dalai Lama to be my guru or my spiritual teacher, even though he's a Buddhist and I'm a Hindu. I don't really see a distinction with any of that. Um, And if you look at the history of Indian religion, you'll find that those boundaries were very fluid too. Hmm. A lot of... um, there have been sort of religion has been constructed in a particular way. Um, They're colonial encounter is somewhat responsible for that too. Um, But if you look at ancient India, people were moving across these strict boundaries uh, in very fluid and interesting ways. Yeah. Do you consider yourself then, I mean, because many Buddhist traditions are non-theist. Yes. And Hindus would probably by most people be considered polytheist. That's right. Or pantheist. Pantheist. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you, how do you relate to the notion of theism? So my understanding of Hinduism, the way I was raised, pantheistically, is that everything is God. And my understanding of Buddhism, uh, at least the way I studied in the monastery, is that nothing is God. Are those two different points of view? (laughs) I'm not sure that they are. Right. Um, So I think that sometimes God gets in the way, not as a reality, as people perceive that reality in their life, but as an idea or as a word. The word God means so many different things to so many different people that to say, I believe in God, um, assumes a particular way of believing, assumes a particular structure of theism, assumes a particular type of God. Um, But uh, once you see how diverse religious and spiritual life is, once you see how uh, people creatively interpret their own tradition in ways that make sense for them all the time, and that's actually the history of religion, 
then it becomes hard to answer a simple question like, do you believe in God? Because right. you have to define every term. I have to define what it means to believe in something. I have to find who I am even. In relationship to... I have to define <laughs> what it means to to even articulate the idea of God. Mm. So for me, I, I I sometimes think that when we are just focused on the idea of God, uh, we miss what I, I think the point of religion is, which is, in my opinion, not how do we understand God, but rather how do we understand ourselves. Religion is fundamentally a human endeavor. It is practiced, consumed, and constructed by humans. It tells us a lot about what it means to be human. Religion is ancient. It talks about a primordial consciousness in a way that connects us with a earlier incarnation of ourselves. So whether one believes in God or not, I think if one studies religion, one can um, think deeply about what it means to be human, Mm. whether it be through the uh, wisdom of our traditions in terms of life lessons, whether it be through ritual or song or artistic expression, whether it be through the way we do relationships, um, whether it be through the contemplative traditions or practices that might help us in some way or another. Mm. Um, Many of those structures of religion don't really have anything to do with God, quite frankly. And we see them replicated in things like sports, which some people might consider a religion. Mm. Um, We certainly see these uh, structures in Buddhism, which isn't even theistic, Jainism, which isn't even theistic. So uh, the way I was raised as a Hindu was many paths up the mountain. We're all going the same place, different strokes for different folks, but we're on a human journey. Um, And so what that means um, is that it's not up to me really to decide what's right in terms of how we label um, ultimate reality. But, um, but in terms of the work I do at USC, I'm more concerned about how people act and move in the world. Mm. And that implicates everyone, religious or not. We should all be conscientious of how we act in the mo- and move in the world. We should all be clear as to what our ethical or moral compass is. We should all engage in positive and healthy relationships because the science tells us that's how we flourish. That's how we thrive. Forget the spirituality. That's what the science is telling us, mm. right? So um, there is a common ground here for all of us as humans to be thinking about the ultimate questions of meaning, purpose, significance, authenticity, the things that make us human. That's why the Office of Religious Life at USC, um, to me, really should be called the Office of Meaning and Purpose. Uh, I can't be the Dean of Meaning and Purpose because that's <laughs> arrogant and pretentious even for me. But um, <laughs> That would be something. Though. But I can't tell you how many people say, oh, uh, I, I, I never came to the Office of Religious Life because I, I'm not religious. But by my senior year, I started coming and I realized, hey, this is – I wish I'd been coming the whole time because there's a particular – I think, um, connotation that people have when they think about religion. They think about theism, um, but I know two-thirds of my students are more spiritual than religious, which means religion isn't just about theism. And I know 42% of my incoming students uh, are not formally religious or affiliated with religion at all. So if we're not having an expansive human conversation about meaning and purpose, we're missing a huge opportunity here. I've often said that if I wasn't raised um, in a Christian household, I might have Uh, studied psychology or philosophy or perhaps one of the other social sciences like sociology or anthropology because of my just predilection to that sort of thing. Um, I mean, how do you, I mean, you, you mentioned a second ago the sciences and what the sciences are starting to tell us about human behavior and human interaction and our connectedness with one another and well-being as it relates to all of these things. How how do you, um, 
do you differentiate much between sort of the disciplines of philosophy and psychology and religion? Or are they all kind of looking at this big elephant from a different perspective? I mean, I love that analogy of the elephant from a different perspective. Eight blind men each grab one part of the elephant. They describe the elephant the way they feel it. From their perspective, what they describe is true. But not until they start talking to each other can they build the elephant as a whole. Mm. That's the way I see the university. That's the unique opportunity of the university, to be interdisciplinary, to think think about phenomenon from multifaceted perspectives, uh, to think about how we connect all the dots between our siloed sort of disciplines. Um, And I think being a Hindu, um, I was never raised with the distinction that this is spirituality or religion and this is science. Mm. I was raised with it's all consciousness, it's all existence, it's all the universe. This kind of modern dualism was not really imposed on you. Well, a lot of it has been sort of informed by the... Um, creations versus evolution debate in the United States. So much of religion and science comes out of that debate. And people get really, you know, emotional and sort of in that debate, and um, they can never talk to each other uh, when that's the only parameter. But in the Hindu and Buddhist tradition where time is cyclical and not linear, there is no beginning of time, there is no end of time, uh, that actually corresponds to Big Bang Theory in terms of an expanding and contracting universe. Uh, I can't find that much in Hindu theology or in Buddhist theology or philosophy or psychology that contradicts what I find in science. And the Dalai Lama tells us if Buddhism says something that science doesn't, then Buddhism needs to change, right? Hmm. So uh, That's a progressive outlook. That's right. But that's also, I think, part of the tradition itself, which is um, empirical, evidence-based. Uh, it should be based on your own experiences, especially Buddhism, which isn't theistic. It's really about suffering and the science of suffering uh, and the way out. People call the Buddha the divine physician because they saw him as someone who was healing people, curing people, uh, a scientist, really, um, even though his uh, his medicine was the Dharma. So, uh, you know, I wasn't raised with that idea that religion and science are two are, are at odds with each other all the time. Um, I was raised with the idea that they're two sides of the same coin. Now, in a university, we have to do a lot of work to put people um, in conversation with each other across that divide. But if we can't do that at the university, I don't know where we can do it. Um, so one of the great aspects of my job is as a practitioner of religion, I was – never taken seriously by scholars. As a scholar of religion, I was never taken seriously by practitioners. <laughs> oh, I, I know always, that feeling. I always struggle to reconcile the spiritual and scholarly aspects of my life. My job as dean of religious life is to bring together the spiritual and scholarly resources of the university. It's to put those conversations um, t- in place, to put the scientists and the spiritualist uh, on the panel together. Is and that a kind of synthesis? Is that a word that you would use, like a, kind of trying to synthesize all these things? Into I don't some know. Kind of- S- sen- I, I'm not sure about synthesize. In my own maybe personal belief, yes, but I think in, par- in, in the work of the university, at least to be able to acknowledge and converse and explore and debate and deliberate mm. and honor each other's perspectives. Yeah, mm, I think mm. that is something we can do at a university because we have, we're secular and we have the power to convene, you know, it's not, and so I think we can do it in a way that makes us a, a neutral, safe arbit- arbiter of the conversation or mediator of the conversation. You use the word spiritual a lot yeah. as we've been talking in place that for us yeah. in kind of your worldview. Well, um, 
I always ask my students what's the difference between religion and spirituality. I've gotten a lot of really interesting <laughs> a lot um, of essays on that. Conversations with students. A computer science student from India told me religion is closed source and spirituality is open source. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, I think that um, religion is more about um, the tradition, the community, the texts. Um, spirituality is more about one's own experiences in the world. Uh, Deepak Chopra said, religion is someone else's experience. Spirituality is your own experience. Hmm. Um, the reason I use the word spiritual so much is because I work on a secular university campus where most of my students self-describe as spiritual as opposed to religious. Hmm. Um, and so I want to be inclusive in all of that. I think all of the way I define spiritual, I think all of us are spiritual. For me, spirituality is wrestling with the questions that make us human, hmm. uh, meaning and purpose and significance, those questions. Who am I? What does my life mean? How do I translate my values into action? Um, what role do I want to play in this world? What matters to me? Why does it matter to me? Those aren't theistic questions. Those are human questions. Right. Uh, so I use that term, I think, somewhat deliberately because of where I work, the context in which I operate. Uh, and it's my, my – the chaplains who work in my office can be very explicit in terms of their denominational or theistic perspectives. But as an umbrella and as someone who manages and oversees the structure, I have to be – it, you know, sure. I'm not the Hindu chaplain. I'm a chaplain who happens to be Hindu, right. but I have to. My job is to support all students, no matter where they're at in their journey. And for me, spiritual gets to that in a way that religion doesn't always. Is that how challenging does that get? I mean, you certainly must run into expressions of religion and spirituality that really rub you the wrong way. How do you manage that? Well, I'm a lawyer, and so I see it through the First Amendment. You know, my job is not to support one theological belief or another. That actually um, over, that actually violates the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. Mm. Um, I'm here to um, really implement American secularism, which is all religion and perspective in the public sphere, to make sure that everyone has an equal say and that people aren't established or endorsed over another group. So I manage the structure. I manage the idea that everyone needs to have an opportunity to be at the table. So I take great joy and pride and satisfaction in being in the service of the First Amendment and mm. being in the service of that idea, even if I disagree personally with the theological perspectives at play. Sure. But as university chaplain, I oversee, you know, I have Trump supporters and Bernie supporters. I have pro-life students and pro-choice students. I have, you know, conservative and liberal. I have theistic and non-theistic. I have, um, you know, almost every iteration of spiritual and religious life that you can imagine underneath this umbrella. Mm. So it doesn't help if I come out with a particular perspective uh, that is my own. I have to be... Um, uh, at least publicly, um, an open door for everyone. So I have mm. to be very careful in terms of what I'm saying about religion. Uh, my beliefs can't be the office beliefs. Uh, right. And that's why the First Amendment is probably my most sacred text in this job. It seems like one of the most ubiquitous expressions in somebody's Twitter bio is, um, you know, views expressed are my own. Yeah, that's not, right. You know, and I wonder if it's even, I, I was just having a conversation with a judge um, in the state of Connecticut, happened to uh, be in um, kind of a, a meeting with with them, and and it was reminded again that lawyers and judges, in, in particular, are often um, you know you almost never know where they stand on things because they're not permitted to be as vocal about That's those right. things. Um, right. It's uh, do you tend to be? I mean, did that come easily for you? Did you tend to be a no. private person, or did you really have to discipline yourself well, to hold I think, back? Yeah, I think the public being. 
I have a public role, but I am a private person. I, sure. I was going to be a monk at one point. I, you know, I struggled with some aspects of that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but I was really attracted to the idea of, um, uh, of solitude. You know, mm. I, I crave it, quite frankly. So I'm not on any social media. I, that's partly of my personality, but it's partly professional. That being said, I have very strong opinions about the world, about sure. the politics of the world, about how religion can be part of a problem or part of a solution. Right. Um, but I don't have the luxury to articulate any of those because I work with the Israeli student and the Palestinian student, the Indian student, and the Pakistani student. I work with you know Hindus wow. and Muslims and Jews, um, and I can't risk anything being misinterpreted in a way that gives me less that doesn't give me credibility with the with my students right. essentially. Uh, I mean, I think that's it, it's integrity. I think to be able to hold that position, it's not easy, especially in this social media environment that we have inherited or have created for ourselves, where you know everybody's um, you know 140 or I guess now 280 character opinion is you know urgently expressed you know repeatedly throughout the day. That's right. Um, and so, in some ways, it's a blessing because I even if I wanted to be involved in that, I I I can't be, and that gives me less noise, I think, in my life. Mm. Um, um, but it is frustrating sometimes to bite your tongue and sit on your hands. And I struggle with this. What does it mean to be doing prophetic work? The old university chaplain model is truth to power, even if it means you speak out against the university administration, you speak out about against the war in Vietnam or Iraq or whatever era you're living in. You speak right. out against policies uh, that implicate uh, your community. You speak out against religious officials, whatever. That's the model of the university chaplain. My model is very different. It's I can do more behind the scenes than I can do in front of the cameras. And so my prophetic work is best done if no one knows about it, quite frankly. And so I have a very different perspective. It's very, mm. it's unusual. It's not the, the mainstream sort of liberal Protestant perspective. Um, and I think it's informed by the fact that I am also a university official, you know, so right. what good is it for me to speak out against myself? Maybe as a university official, there are ways for me to help the problem as opposed to inflame it. And that's what I try and do. Well, and I think maybe that's why there is such a an openness here to non-religious students and actually formally accepting and formally making space for humanists um, and even adding to your staff uh, a non-theist uh, humanist uh, person um, do you think that that sort of uh, has created an, a, a willingness here, your attitude towards all of these things has created a willingness here to embrace humanism as a part of the discussion, whereas at other places maybe they're having a little bit more of a hard time with that? I think it's probably – that's partly true. Um, the great news is I inherited this model where we're not oriented around God but around meaning. Mm. That's the model that Rabbi Susan Lemley, the first dean of religious life, created, and it makes sense for who I am. Right. I would have probably gotten there anyway, but the fact that I inherited it um, helped me, I think, from the outset build a very inclusive religious life community. Um, I think in terms of humanism, there is always this challenge, do humanist groups belong in an office of religious life? When I first got here, there was an atheist group, and they were like, we don't want to be part of religious life. I'm like, no, but we're also spiritual life, and you know, trust me, I'm here to support you. And they pushed back a lot, and I'm like, okay, that's fine. I totally get it, and I respect it, sure. but whatever you need, you let me know. And I think they appreciated that. You know, yeah. I'll still fund you, still give you rooms, whatever you need. Just come to me. You need to talk, whatever. Um, but I, I, I think that when we finally did bring the Secular Student Fellowship 
uh, into the Office of Religious Life. It did allow us to put people in conversation with each other, and not just students, but also our chaplains mm. uh, in our chaplains meetings um, in a way that they hadn't been in conversation before. And you know this, uh, our secular students are more religiously literate than almost anyone. Mm. Um, they're deep thinking students uh, who are brave and um, bold and courageous and uh, inspired and really as engaged in thinking about social justice and doing goodness in the world as any of our students anywhere. Uh, and they could meet people across the faith spectrum who had very similar goals and aspirations and beliefs as they did. Our secular students are very involved in our mindfulness initiatives, very involved in our interfaith work. So I'll give you know the credit to the students and to the leaders like you, um, but I think the structure makes a difference. I, I don't understand why other deans of religious life or university chaplains around the country don't have humanist chaplains as part of religious life. I ask them this all the time. I don't. I have not been given a satisfactory answer. Uh, if it's just because secular students are not theistic, then why are Buddhist and Jain groups part of religious life? Mm, I, mm. I just don't understand. I am lucky that I am doing this work in California, in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has always been an incubator for spiritual ideas. We've uh, The East Coast is sort of pan-Atlantic. They look to Europe. We're trans-Pacific. We look to Asia. Mm. Uh, we've had our you know first Asian-American immigrants came to the West Coast. That's why we have these uh, large Asian populations in L.A. and San Francisco and Seattle. So um, there's already in Los Angeles, in the air, sort of a type of spiritual openness. It's the place where yoga boomed. It's the place where New Age boomed. It's the place where we can go out and do ayahuasca at 120 different sites on any different weekend. It's already very rich with alternative and newly formulated and packaged ideas and ideologies. So I think doing this work in Los Angeles gives me the freedom to throw out the old chaplain's playbook, Mm. which is I'm going to sit in my office and wait for students to come to me. No, I go to where our students are at. We're oriented around God. No, we're oriented around meaning. We only work with theistic folks. No, we work with everyone. Hmm. Um, uh, Religion is something that happens in the context of worship service. No, religion is something that happens in every facet of people's lives. So I want to build the office of tomorrow. I don't want to replicate the office of yesterday. And so we try to put a marker out there and say, this is where we think we're going, and this is how we're going to build it. Yeah, and you were citing some statistics that I'm sure – many people listening have heard, but, you know, an increasing number of your incoming students are not choosing one of the on the menu of religions. It's 42% this year. So the way I see it is you, as the humanist chaplain, actually have the biggest opportunity of any of our chaplains, quite frankly, because you are the only humanist chaplain on a campus where we have 42% not affiliated incoming students. That doesn't mean they're all humanists, right? but they are all thinking about the big questions in their life outside traditional religious structures and communities. And I think your own personal experience can be really helpful in helping our students think about that. Yeah. And whether, you know, whether we like it or not, historically, religion has been the lens through which people have primarily grappled with these big questions. I suppose philosophy um, and, you know, literature and poetry and all of the humanities um, have been about trying to find ourselves and locate ourselves in the world and understand who we are and how we relate to each other, whether it's through, you know, poetry or fiction or, um, but, but religion has been a primary way that parents have raised their children to think morally. 
And I think the mistake, in my view, is that religions have then thought that they have the corner on the conversation about morality, but it just because that's where the conversation has lived for so long, just because you don't find any of the tenets of any particular faith convincing to you doesn't mean that you suddenly don't need to wonder or concern about morality and ethics and meaning and joy. Exactly. Just because you leave religion doesn't mean you should leave the search for truth or meaning or beauty or justice. Or In fact, it community. was the search for truth that led me out of religion. That's actually. right. <laughs> so. But then you can see how challenging it's, it is when you leave that congregational framework to try and build a new community outside of that, right? And yeah. oh, for a lot of people, and you know this better than anyone, the theology is not the prize of admission. The theology is the price of admission, right? especially for young people. You put up with a theology that you might not believe in to have community, to have meaning, to have right. purpose, to have support, to have ritual, to have a sense of intergenerational connection and family sort of closeness. So the theology is kind of just on the side, right? Right. Yeah, and I think religion, at least some religions, the Abrahamic religions in particular, um, uh, you know, put air quotes around the word, you know, benefit from a kind of uh, inherent compulsion you know, so when I was a Christian, I, I could say, you know, you you were required to come to services. You were required to pray and read your Bible. I mean, it, this is an essential component of being uh, a Christian, um, whereas within, you know, one of the things that you sort of reap when you become a humanist or you leave behind um, Christianity, as in my case, is sort of this lack of compulsion, this sense of freedom and but the flip side of that coin is that you can't ever get anybody to do anything again, like yeah. <laughs> or to move together in the same yes. direction. Everybody becomes because I think what you inherit, especially in modern America, is this you know very high pitched individualism. Um, and my experience was that you know it's like a progressive Christian faith was almost the only thing holding back the tide of this rampant individualism. Wow. And now starting to wonder, okay, how do we organize? people who are searching for meaning, but who don't feel like God's going to smite them if they don't do X, Y, and Z, right. you know, come to the secular student fellowship meeting. You can come or you can not, you know, it doesn't. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's an interesting challenge. And how do you build community in ways that don't look religious, right? I mean, in some ways, maybe you do, but then there are people who leave religion who are don't want humanism then to look like the thing they left too. So right. I think that is also a challenge for community building within a humanist space. I mean, I think there is, I, I'm not a psychologist and so I, I couldn't, you know, validate whether it's actually, you know, post-traumatic stress, but I think for some people, the appearance of the religious movements for post-theists is, it, it is a triggering yeah, kind of thing for them. I can see that. That's a good you know, and so I think the more it smells and feels and sounds like, I mean, you know, when I go to Sunday Assembly and they're doing a fantastic job of creating this space, this meaning-making space, but there's opening songs, there's announcements, there's a talk, there's a coffee hour at the end, there's some social activities that happen during the week. I mean, it's like church. Yes. And I love what they're doing and I'm still kind of like, uh, I don't know if I want to participate. That's just on me. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean that there's any less value to what they're doing. I think yep. it's fantastic, but yep. I'm just, you know, I struggle in that. And, um, and, and yet the religions have organized themselves around these certain activities for a reason. 
They've worked for, for millennia. I call them spiritual technologies because they've been tried and tested over millennia. Like you say, these aren't just haphazard ideas. They exist because they're effective. Mm. We talk about the scientific process here, the scientific method here, where you hypothesize, you test, you confirm, or you falsify, you rehypothesize, you retest, so you get to where you're going. Spiritual traditions have done that all the time or throughout their history when it comes to text or meditation or prayer or singing. These are technologies that have been tried and tested over time. The reason they exist is because they work. And now that science is studying prayer, studying meditation, studying song, studying the things that religion has done, we have a scientific explanation and basis for saying, yeah, these, do, these things do make people feel better about themselves. They do create a sense of connectivity with other humans. They do increase joy or compassion or gratitude, uh, all of which help us flourish. So the science in some ways is finally catching up to the spirituality in that regard. It seems to me that the percentage of younger people, you know, we currently have millennials. I don't know what they're going to be called. The next, yes. the next I've, round. iGen is what I heard. iGen, okay. <laughs> so with every passing generation or every upcoming generation, it seems to me, and you know, and of course we don't know, but we were, you know, people predicted the end of religion in the 70s. Yes. But it seems that there are going to be more and more unaffiliated young people coming into college and university campuses. Do you envision in the future, maybe not too far in the future, um, a way that the post-theist, non-theist students, humanists um, can have a an influence on campus in a way that's more than just we can be a part of it too, but there can be a, a kind of leadership role for... I mean, you're already doing that yeah. in your own office, but what, what, what kind yeah. of vision do you see for that on the campus? Yeah, you're right. You're, all the numbers support your thesis. I know we've gone through the secularization thesis before, and it's always proved wrong. Freud said religion was dead a long time ago, and right. that's just not true. But... When you look at the numbers, you know, uh, 2% of Americans not affiliated in 1950, 20% of Americans not affiliated today, 40% of millennials not affiliated, that's a dramatic change in two generations. That is the story of American religion. Hmm. 250, 200,000 churches are going to close in the next, out of 250,000. We're going to lose 80% of our Protestant churches over the last next 20 years. Two-thirds of divinity schools are about to shut down because of enrollment issues. Yeah. Um, you know, it, this is, I think, a sign of things to come. Um, the only reason, and I'll be honest with you here, that USC is so religiously diverse and vibrant in our traditional religious life is because we have 11,000 international students. Mm. Not, you know, it's not, we don't see the rise in our domestic students. We see the rise in our Chinese students who for the first time might be able to have a public religious life here wow. in a way they never could before. Our yeah. Korean students who are very involved in religious life. You know, our Indian students are like inundated. They're like, enough, enough. We want to go to the football game. But, <laughs> but uh, for many of our students, it is a first exposure to denominational sort of or congregational worship. So uh, that skews our numbers, I think, in, in a way. Uh, what does it mean then for the future when we move to a, a situation where most of our domestic students are post-theistic or non-religious? I don't know. I don't know if if you're if, will there be a secular student group if the majority of students are humanist already. What does that mean when the campus itself is already secular? Um, here's my concern. You brought up a really good point that traditionally religion has been the location where the intergenerational transmission of values, uh, ritual, um, meaning making, mythology has happened. Ethical sort of perspectives, etc. Um, in the absence of that, 
there has to be another way to address those issues. But at the same time that our students are becoming less and less religious, they're also less and less likely to study in the humanities, which is the other place on campus where we think about what it means to be human. I taught right. a class on religion this year, 55 kids. Not a single one of them was a humanities major. Not a single one of them was a religion major. And that's driven, I don't know if you would agree with this, it seems completely driven by our economy. Like, it is. Where are you going to get... Of course it is. Where, how are you going to feed your family? Listen, USC is $72,000 a year this year. Yes. And so it becomes a transactional kind... You know, our, our kids are feeling a lot of pressure because there is a lot of pressure to get the job, to pay off the bill because the tuition is much higher than it was when we were in college. Now, I think that narrative isn't true. It turns out that humanity majors do just as well, make just as much money, do even better on tests like the LSAT, the MCAT, and the GMAT than people in the sciences, social sciences, and natural sciences. But the narrative out there is, what are you going to do with an art history major? What are you going to do with a religion major? What are you going to do with a philosophy major? How are you going to pay your bills? So that the whole university experience has become much more transactional. I got into this work because I wanted to mentor students. But now I feel sometimes like I'm a service provider and students are clients. And the whole giving of a grade or passing of knowledge is really a transactional relationship. I'm paying for a service. And I think we lose something there. We lose something when students are have their predominant social relationships online and they're not so sure how to meet other people in real life yeah. because that – also loses a human connection. We lose something when we don't have humanities front and center or uh, in our liberal arts education or where the liberal arts are no longer imagined as a way for us to create critical thinking students who ask questions like, who am I and what does my life mean? We lose something when students are no longer religious and don't replace that with another kind of community or um, perspective on the world that helps them um, flourish and thrive and have healthy relationships. So we're at the convergence of factors here, the loss of religion, the sort of um, the uh, the rise of social media, which makes it more difficult for students to have interpersonal human relationships. And I would say um, the the nature of higher education, which is moving more towards the transactional and the professionalization as opposed to the reflective mm. and the what is this all about? Yeah. And so, when it comes to politics and civic life, I mean, you know, I think about you know, what's required of us as Americans right now in terms of really navigating the choppy waters that we're in, how, you know, if people aren't grappling with the humanities and how to think, not just what to think, and more than just technology, how to assemble, you know, a computer versus how to think about what it means to be human, it's very difficult to expect people will be um, equipped to navigate the fast-changing future that we're facing with the rise of artificial intelligence, um, the digitization of everything, right. the commodification of everything. Right. How do you how do you make a decision about whether um, a certain kind of economic progress is really progress? It's it's, yeah, it's really troubling. A critical thinker, and it turns out that our employers are asking us. Send us more students who are culturally competent. Send us more students who are empathetic. Send us more students who are creative thinkers. Send us more students who are critical thinkers. We're, we can provide technical skills. Send us more students who think outside the box. Send us more students who reflect a traditional liberal arts education. Mm. So it's not even true that the new transactional nature of higher education is actually creating students who are better prepared for the workplace. That's actually not true, too. Wow. So I remember trying to find a job after I left my pastoral ministry. And, you know, my resume, you know, in short said um, 20 years 
pastor. Yeah. And people were like, we don't know what that means. Yeah. You know, what it meant was that I had all of these human skills, all yes. these sort of soft skills. But in terms of could you run a business? Could yes. you, you know, raise money for an organization? You know, I've done some of those things, but I, I don't have on my resume the, the exact things that typically a hiring, uh, you know, a person was looking for. And it's, so it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think that employers are going to have to start articulating yeah. what they want and yeah. measuring it in different ways. Yep. You know, and, be, and if you're hiring someone in the computer sciences, obviously they need to be an expert in the computer sciences, but they also need to be able to like relate to the guy in the cubicle next to you. <laughs> like yes. it's, it's, it's a, it's a really interesting um, challenge. I wanted to ask you another thing about campus life. I know one of the issues um, that's been, um, in the news around the United States on campuses is the kind of the free speech issues and, um, you know, certain, um, players there or actors that would like to exploit the campus environment for their sort of personal political cause. Has that, um, dilemma touched USC in a significant way? Yes, it's touched us all. And how do you, how do you relate to that? Well, you know, there. Even though we're a secular campus, there is something sacred on our campus that we mostly all agree on, and that is f- academic freedom and free speech, the First Amendment, essentially. Um, that, to me, is the heart of what it means to be a great research university. If you don't have academic freedom, um, then you don't have the ability to really push research in the direction that you need to push it in to be as expansive and as sort of impactful as you could be. So every major research university puts academic freedom right at the heart of the enterprise of the university. Um, What does that mean in terms of hate speech? You know, the reality that most people don't want to hear is that for the most part, hate speech is constitutionally protected speech. Correct. Um, So uh, that I think a lot of people assume it's not, but it is. Um, And it's, it becomes a dance. People often use a university campus as a location to get a perspective across. So outside groups will try to stage an event or bring speakers to a campus because that helps them make a point and they know they're going to get play and that helps them raise money for their cause. So sometimes our students are used, uh, not our students at USC specifically, but students across the country um, are are off are sometimes used by external organizations to bring provocative or controversial speakers to campus in a way that student groups aren't even aware of. When it comes to free speech, there are a lot of stakeholder groups on campus uh, and off campus. There are groups off campus who use the university platform as a way of getting an ideology or a message or making a point and therefore being able to raise more money for their cause. Um, there are um, student groups on campus who just, you know, they have the right to bring any speaker they want for the most part. Um, and they'll exercise that right. Um, The university itself can't be a place, in my opinion, that picks and chooses sides. We have to be the framework Mm -hmm. that allows the conversation to happen. So people would want the university to condemn a student or a professor or a speaker for whatever reason. Um, But, you know, the the university has to just say our value is creating the space to have these conversations. We create the framework. We may disagree with everything that people say, but that doesn't mean that we're not providing the framework. Um, that's the principle that the university resides upon. Now, a lot of people say that this generation is less likely, our current students, less likely to have free speech at all costs, that they're more willing to put limits on speech. 
And if that is true, I think that comes from a, a noble place, even if the outcome is a little challenging from a constitutional perspective. I think the place it comes from is that these students were raised in an online environment where they see the toxic toxicity of the anonymous trolls in any chat room, Mm -hmm. where every time they write a Daily Trojan article, the Islamophobes and anti-Semites post all this crazy stuff. uh, And they've seen their friends who are negatively impacted by all this hate mongering online, and they want to protect their friends. Right. We, didn't, we weren't raised in that kind of environment, so we could be free speech at any cost because right. we didn't see the emotional impact in the way that they have. So I think it comes from a noble place if it is true that they're less likely to have expansive free speech. Students are less likely to promote expansive free speech. But I don't think the university can compromise on academic freedom. It's interesting because you also hold the title of uh, threat. Yeah, vice provost for campus wellness and Crisis intervention. Crisis intervention. Yeah. So I, mean, I get it on all sides, dude. <laughs> oh, I get it on all sides. Because I, I, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you, and I've thought a lot about this too. And I know there are some people out there who think that, you know, college students who are, you know, upset about something is the greatest threat to our democracy. Yeah. I, I tend to think that college students that are upset about things are, fine, you know, they're college students that are paying attention. Yep. They're college students just like those during the Vietnam War that yep. were outraged by what was going on in Vietnam and willing to say so. Usually I feel like when there's a line that gets crossed somewhere uh, around safety of yeah. students, you know, yeah. where it's, it's difficult to make judgments about whether a, a particular event or person is acting in good faith. But when it does seem like there's a moment where a certain event or a certain speaker or a certain activity is proposing to be this place of free speech and it's not a good faith effort at free speech, it really is in some cases in the past, recent past, an effort to actually jeopardize people, um, incite people to some kind of action that would hurt a group or individual. Um, do, you, do you see a point at which, you know, a university has to say, you know, in, in spite of a person's free speech, it seems that the agenda here is more than just speech. It's actually to um, create an environment that would put our, a segment of our pop- student population in actual harm, like physical yes. harm. Of course. And not all speech is protected speech, right? You can't threaten. You can't intimidate. Right. You can't. Fighting words is not protected. Clear and present danger issues aren't protected. Causing a public nuisance, saying let's burn down this building. None of those things are protected. Right. So even outside the sort of parameters of what people might consider to be hate speech, there is constitutionally prohibited speech, too, or speech that's not protected uh, that could be implicated when anyone wants to bring harm on anyone else. Um Plus, we have protected class issues, right? right? So right. you can't be um, uh, intimidating or harassing or bullying people on, based on a protected class. That would trigger an investigation. Um, so it is – I think each case is its own thing, um, and we have to evaluate each case. Um, the whole free speech versus public safety issue is a real issue. It's right. a real issue. Like when, um, when Berkeley had been struggling with some of these um, – uh, public speakers, you know, in my opinion, Berkeley did everything right. They went above and beyond uh, trying to provide a safe space for their students to have this. They spent a ton of money, a lot of police. I mean, they really tried to let someone speak. But at the end of the day, if people are tearing down buildings and starting fires, like you, as a university, I think the one thing that 
means more than anything, maybe even so-called expansive free speech, is public safety. You can't have a university if your students are being hurt or if your people are being threatened or intimidated. Um, all universities have had really challenging issues, whether they be active shooter, whether they be, you know, of course, we're all, you know, with sexual assault. I'm, you know, right. We see it all the time that you can't learn and thrive in an environment where you're not protected physically. Well, uh, especially that a majority of your, of your undergrads, at least, are minors, and they are here you know, with the permission of their parents. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just a group of adults you're dealing with. You have minors, and it's, it's got to be an incredible challenge to balance all of that. I, I don't envy you. Yeah, it, and like I said, each case is kind of its own thing. Um, but all the attention put on it doesn't help either. Right. And um, <laughs> when you focus so much on these speakers, you give them a lot of power. And at the end of the day, the thing the speaker doesn't want is an empty room. The worst thing you can do for a speaker, in my opinion, is not cancel the event, but not, but it's actually not attend the event. Canceling the event still gives a profile like, I'm so dangerous, and look, they shut me down, and I'm a crusader for free speech, and suddenly FIRE and ACLU and all the, these other organizations are defending the right, and then the university is up against those advocates, and that doesn't look good. Right. Right? But if you're speaking to an empty room— that's the worst thing for a speaker to do. Right. So I always tell my students, just don't go. I mean, it's easier said than done. Just ignore it. Just ignore the person, you know, boycott, do a counter event, you know. Yeah, plan something at the same time somewhere else. But the more fire, you know, the more, the more, the more attention you give, the more power speakers have. Yeah, I mean, and you started this whole conversation talking about your family's connection to, to Gandhi and – um, when I think about people like Gandhi and just yesterday was um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, birthday observed here in, in um, the United States. And um, when I think about these individuals and so many others like them, there was this creativity about how to solve these almost impossible problems. You know, how do we go about being more creative in our protests or in our um, sort of counter offerings uh, of what, what we might be for, not just what we're against. And I, I know these are all, you know, really fraught subjects that we don't have time to explore tonight. But um, yeah, I just I wonder sometimes, you know, who will be the, the people, the individuals who rise up and say, um, here's a creative way of approaching this that really does sort of in, you know, take the piss out of you know, right. this thing that's really reprehensible. And I think our opportunity here is for our students to be those leaders. That's right. And that's why I think both of us do this work. Yeah. Um, to plant the seeds that grow over time. You know, if a student changes a perspective, then their friends might change a perspective and their friends might – you can have an exponential impact just with a student coming to a particular awakening. And we can be on the front lines of that. Yeah, that's uh, super exciting. Well, I appreciate everything you're doing. Well, I appreciate everything you're doing, and I'm really grateful to have been able to speak with you. Yeah. Uh, this is a really important podcast, and uh, I got to say I've admired you for many years from afar, and I know our paths have crossed intermittently, but uh, I am so excited to have you on this campus. Well, I'm excited and, to be here. And uh, I can't wait to see all the extraordinary things that you're going to do with our students to make – um, to put them in the service of an idea that's bigger and more powerful than themselves. So, Thanks, Varun. Varun and I could have definitely talked for a lot longer, as I'm sure you can tell, but I hope to have him back on the program before too long to talk more about 
uh, his life and what we're doing here together at USC. I also mentioned Vanessa Gomez-Brake earlier in the show. She's the associate dean and a humanist herself, and I'm excited to have her on the program in the near future and share a little bit about her background and what she's doing here at USC. But the three of us are really excited to work together on behalf of the 42% of USC students who are unaffiliated with any religion, many of whom are humanists and atheists. Thanks for spending a part of your day with me today. Tune in next time for a new X-Files episode. Until then, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Thank you.